Welcome back to Morpeth Moments. I'm Marlene, and I'll be telling stories of true crime, about murder, other tragedies, and sometimes some interesting tidbits involving people who had connections with the town of Morpeth, New South Wales, and its surrounding districts, as convicts, soldiers and settlers made this area their home, stayed for a while to discover their niche, or moved on to seek their fortune. The stories are based in the 19th and early 20th century. The accounts are researched and referenced by myself from open-sourced information, family research, state archive records and trove newspapers, as listed on my podcast page. Music by Kevin MacLeod and Fesleyan Studios. Sound effects by Sound Bible. I tell my stories with great respect for the victims and their families. I also retain all the information I find with family trees, other articles and interesting tidbits. Please feel free to email me. My address is on my podcast page. If there is any misinformation or you would like to find out more, please contact me here. Floods on the Hunter River, Part 1 Wallambai an Aboriginal word meaning place where waters meet. The mountains west of Wallambai contained ceremonial sites where Aboriginal groups from far and wide met for large tribal gatherings. The traditional lands of the Wanarawa people are located in the Hunter Valley area of New South Wales. A Dreamtime story from the Wanarawa people explains how the hills and rivers in the Hunter Valley were created by the spirit Bayami. The history of the Aboriginal people reflect their land management practices in response to flood and drought regimes. Their stories explain the natural cycles and how they adapted in flood times. Bayami is the creator spirit of the dreaming of the Aboriginal peoples of southeastern Australia, including the Wanarua, Wiradjuri, Darkinjung, Awabakal, Waramai and Camilleroy. Bayami's stories of creation, sky knowledge and celestial formations are shared through oral accounts from generation to generation through the culmination of stories known as the dreaming. The first European references to Bayami date from the 1820s and 1830s and appear in the accounts of missionaries and white explorers. Around the local Hunter Valley area, there are many indigenous sites to be found, such as middens, grinding grooves, caves, stones, rock formations, and initiation areas. Bayami Cave is an Aboriginal rock art site, located on private property near Milbridale. Milbridale is set in a rural area 23 kilometres south of Singleton. To the north of Milbridale is Darky Creek, while to the west is Wallambai Brook. To the west is the rugged sandstone wilderness of the Wallambai National Park, the second largest national park in New South Wales. The following are newspaper accounts of a couple of more disastrous floods that occurred in the district, describing its tragic effects.
Illustrated Sydney News Saturday the 16th of July 1864 The Flood at Maitland The tendency of the Hunter River to overflow its banks has always been a source of anxiety to the residents in its vicinity. Three times during the current year they have suffered from those visitations, the most disastrous being that of the 14th, 15th and 16th of June which, though not so high as some of its predecessors, has been productive of more destruction of property and loss of life. During the night of the 13th, the river overflowed its banks in the rear of Mr Sawyer's and rose steadily until Wednesday morning, carrying away the dikes which had been thrown up to stop its progress. During Tuesday, the river continued to rise the backwater increasing considerably and covering the cultivator lands on all sides. The tops of the telegraph posts being the only things visible between the bridge and the hills, bordering Luth Park and Dagworth. The long bridge was covered. The waters spread over the horseshoe bend and in the lower part of the town almost every house was partially filled. Nearly 300 tenements were rendered untenable and the inhabitants compelled to seek safety on higher ground. The openings in the railway being insufficient to carry off the water, a portion of the embankment was washed away and the approaches to the bridges rendered unsafe. The trains ceased running, thus for some time stopping communication between East Maitland and Morpeth. A dealer named Simon Goodman, aged 26, was drowned near the Black Horse Inn. His body was found nine days after in Duncan Lane, East Maitland. The scene in High Street will long be remembered. A perfect sea of water forced its way landward from the river. The majority of the houses were inundated. Household furniture, dead cattle and farm stock floated about in all directions. And during Wednesday, great anxiety prevailed, many persons being compelled to take refuge in the upper portion of their dwellings. About midnight the water reached its highest point, being then 26 feet above the usual high water level and within two inches of the February flood. At about four o'clock on Thursday morning, two houses built on the edge of the river opposite Hall store gave way and fell backwards into the river, bearing with them the occupants of one. A man named Fairfield, his wife, and three children, and a Mrs. Robinson, Mr. and Mrs. Boyle, who resided in the other, escaped by jumping landwards from the balcony. They succeeded in wading through the stream to Mr. Mullins and gave the alarm. Several persons were attracted by the screams of the unfortunate people, who were struggling amidst the rapid waters. Search was made along the course of the backwater, but no traces of them could be discovered. About seven o'clock next morning, Mr. Fairfield and two children were discovered alive on Cohen's Island by the boat of the Morpeth steamer. The bodies of Mrs. Fairfield and Mrs. Robinson were found next day on the flat, partially covered by a heap of debris, and the body of Sophia Fairfield was picked up in the paddock close to the railway. During Thursday, the river fell about 18 inches and gradually contracted to its usual dimensions, leaving a thick layer of mud over the whole of the ground that had been inundated. 
Since the subsidence of the waters, the river's banks have given way in several places. During the morning of the 26th, an extensive landslip took place near High Street, carrying with it portions of Collins and four other stores, and rendered the position of several others very precarious. The amount of destitution occasioned by the flood is fearful to contemplate. Numbers were driven from their homes, their effects swept away, and many families left entirely dependent upon the charity of their neighbours. Prompt measures have since been taken to relieve their distress. Meetings have been held in Sydney and in the country districts. Subscription lists have been opened and efforts are being made in some measures to compensate the sufferers for the losses they have sustained. Sydney Mail, Saturday the 2nd of April, 1870 The Floods at Maitland The following letter, describing some of the incidents of the late flood at Maitland, has been received by Mr Levian from his son, and handed to us for publication. West Maitland, March 24 My dear father, you no doubt think it strange my not writing before now, but can assure you I have been engaged both night and day for the last fortnight pulling the boats and bringing safely to town the flooded out people. I was for three days and nights without ever having a dry stitch on my back. We had to start perhaps at one o'clock in the morning when guns might be heard to take away people and indeed with great danger to all concerned. I was captain of one boat and Tom Hines of another and the people of Bawara seem very grateful to us, also those of Luth Park, Dagworth, etc. It was the most dangerous place to go to, and one place we had to pass daily was really something awful. My boat's crew luckily went over to Dunmore, a long pull you can guess, although we almost went in a beeline. We reached there at day dawn. The people who survived they were firing guns and waving sheets to denote their delivery. We made up our minds to face the rush of water and after pulling for half an hour, our boat arrived safely. We had to lash the boat to the side of a house to protect it from smashing to atoms. And after an immensity of trouble, we succeeded in rescuing 20 people. We pulled away, but the screams of the women were frightful when we got near to Bawara because we had to cross the dangerous waterfall I wrote about. But we had a stench crew, John Fagan, John Church and William Ogle. I was nearly cooked when I got home and my hands are nearly barked with pulling. You might have read about Church and Fagan taking a woman and four children out of a house near Wallace Creek. It was indeed a brave and plucky thing for two youths and deserved all the praises the newspapers gave them. It was a sad thing about the loss of poor John McLaughlin. He was a good and kind-hearted man. Ours was the second boat out that night. There was a fearful sea with waves and the wind screaming through the trees. It was raining in torrents. One bump against a log or a sunken fence and we might have shared the same fate. I really now believe Maitland is completely ruined and starvation stares hundreds in the face. 
What the poor flooded out farmers are to do until next November or December, I cannot think. The townsmen came out very strong in relief, but you know even the best here can ill afford substantial or even partial relief for so many. I think you should advertise to receive donations of clothing for winter. Even if moth-eaten, it would not matter a bit. Also flour, rice, tea, sugar, etc. Surely many of the rich people in Sydney will give them to you for us, and they would be most welcome. Dozens of these farmers are hopelessly insolvent, but they cannot enjoy the luxury of the whitewash brush, as they have no money to pay fees. The consequence is, if they get a crop hereafter, the landlords or others will claim it altogether. Our district is to be pitied by every kind heart in the colony. Tribune, Sydney, Wednesday the 9th of March 1955. We visited Maitland and met heroes of the flood clean-up. Told to the Tribune by Clyde Smirk, New South Wales Secretary, Eureka Youth League. Last weekend, a team of 20 students and Eureka Youth League members went to Maitland. We took with us food, clothing and money we had collected. Maitland looks like a badly bombed town, with a deep cover of mud thrown in. It'll take months to clean up properly. In one street, where there were 22 houses, not a trace of a house remains. Only mud is left. So great was the force of water that it crushed the gasometer. One worker who asked us for a lift told how he had spent three days on the roof of his house without food. He saw his mate on a roof lower down the street, washed away and disappear. He had lost everything. In every street over the two days we were in Maitland, groups of workers could be seen shoveling mud from houses, carrying out furniture and bedding, most of it beyond hope of further use to dry. The volunteers just hopped in to any house they came to, and the work was so good that by lunchtime Sunday there wasn't a single house from which the mud had not been cleared. Miners formed the biggest contingent, but workers from BHP, gas workers and others kept on arriving in trucks from Newcastle and other towns, over 1,000 altogether. The warmest feeling in the town seemed to be for the miners and for the surfboat crews. Praise was given to the army and police for rescue work, but the surfboat crews did an excellent job in the eyes of the townspeople. We heard much praise too for the Salvation Army, who had organised hot meals from 6am to 10pm for flood victims and the workers. The Red Cross worked as tirelessly, serving hot soup, giving medical aid for injured workers. There is a lot of dangerous work to be done amongst broken glass and heavy and jagged timber. Fruit growers too sent large deliveries of fruit for the population. In fact, there was a splendid feeling of friendship between the population and workers wherever you went, a real willingness of each to assist the other. Council employees from Newcastle, Bullaroo, Gloucester, some volunteers, some employed, were busy with their bulldozers and scrapers. There was no thought of a knock-off for lunch or morning tea. As soon as one driver went off for food, another took his place keeping the machinery going without let up. 
one of these drivers came across the body of a young girl buried in the mud. The muck and debris was being dumped in a lake 20 feet deep where the sports ground had been. It is in the centre of the town and comes right up to the main street. In the northern end of town, the hunter has almost gouged a new channel clean through a main shopping centre and there is an enormous hole. The EYL is continuing to collect relief and next week another team will visit the flood area. I'd like to finish off this episode relating to the floods in the Hunter Valley by telling the story of the local Aboriginal story of Tiddalik. Tiddalik was a giant frog who swallowed all the water from the Wollombo Brook, who would only give the water back if he was made to laugh. Located on the side of a narrow valley near the township of Wollombi, Tiddalik Rock looks up Slacks Creek, which flows to join the Wollombi Brook. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, in the dream time, there was a greedy frog called Tiddalik. Tiddalik wanted to be the biggest frog in all the land. One very hot day, Tiddalik was very thirsty, so he began to drink and drink and drink, until the whole billabong was all dried up. When all the other animals came to the billabong to drink, there was no water. They knew it was a greedy frog who drank all the water. They were very angry at him. If the animals wanted to get all the water out of Tiddalik and back into the billabong, they would have to make Tiddalik laugh until all the water came out. The echidna tried to make him laugh by rolling down the hill into the dried up billabong, but Tiddalik didn't laugh. Kookaburra was perched high in the gum tree. He pretended to fall out but Tiddalik still didn't laugh. Wombat started dancing, but Tiddalik still didn't laugh. None of the animals knew what to do, and they were all still very thirsty. When the snake was dancing, he tied himself into a big knot. Tiddalik could not stop laughing at the snake. He laughed so much that all the water came out and ran back into the billabong. From that day on, Tiddalik was never greedy and only drank what he needed. Around the local Hunter Valley area there are many indigenous sites to be found, though unfortunately many of them are off limits to the general public. One of these accessible areas is Tiddalik Rock, located on the side of a narrow valley near the township of Wollombi. It is an extraordinary rock formation. This site never fails to inspire awe in those who see it. In my next episode of The Floods, I was fortunate to have interviewed Mr John Wright, who recounted some of his memories of the 1955 flood at Morpeth, New South Wales. Mr John Wright is Morpeth's most iconic and well-known local identity, whose heritage dates back to the First Fleeters. The First Fleet is the name given to the first group of 11 ships carrying convicts that left England in May 1787 and arrived in Australia in January 1788. Thank you for listening to Morpeth Moments. Bye for now. <laughs>